All right. Well, most of you know that uh, full-time paid ministry is kind of a second career for me. Uh, for a long time, I was working uh, for a large entertainment company in the legal department at corporate uh, in, in New York City. And uh, some of my responsibilities in the legal department overlapped with the corporate compliance office. Uh, and so my litigation group would sometimes do lunches with compliance. And I know that sounds like a rip-roaring good time. Uh, get the litigators and compliance people together for lunch. Woohoo! Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway. You take what you can get when you're working in a cubicle. You know, like, yeah, I'll go. Let's do lunch. Anyway, as one might assume from the title, our chief compliance officer was in charge of making sure that our company was in compliance with uh, all kinds of governmental rules and regulations for our industry. And they instituted trainings and best practices and things like that for uh, and, and ethics trainings that we had to do every year. Uh, every once in a while, they would have like some prizes or things associated to kind of motivate you to, to, uh, to do the trainings and stuff. But no matter what the prize was, any, every time the corporate trainings came around each year, they were met with the same response of eye rolls, right? Just, oh, again. You know, I did this last year. My afternoon is shot. Got to watch all these silly videos and answer questions and stuff. So we stayed in compliance, but it only, only because it was required of us. Well, today's passage gets to this idea a little bit. See, we're continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount, which we're calling Jesus' Donkey Kingdom Manifesto. Uh, a week before he was arrested, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And in the prophecy that talks about that event, uh, we see that the reason he chooses a donkey is to show the kind of king, the kind of Messiah he is, the kind of kingdom he is going to bring, one of righteousness, victory, and lowliness. And this is opposed to, like, a horse messiah, right? Which would rep represent victory, sure, but victory through power, strength, or conquest, right? But that's different from the kind of kingdom he came to bring. Our victory is assured, but worldly status or power or standing is not. And the Sermon on the Mount is where we hear directly from Jesus about life in his kingdom. What's important, what matters, and how we're supposed to live in this kingdom. And in this kingdom, it's not about being dominated by compliance officers. Let's get into it. We're in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21 this morning. You have, heard it, uh, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Nice and easy. Nice and easy. All right, Jesus, you've given us softball today. This is, this is great. So let's go through this a little bit before we apply it. So back when, I, when we first started into this series, I mentioned that manifestos can have pretty strong language and that this manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, is no different. And we really see some of that strong language in our passage today. So uh, let's take a look at some of this, and I'll explain some of that strong language as we go. So first of all, Jesus takes a law and then interprets it for us, or rather reinterprets it. So have you ever read, if you're reading in the Bible, I'm assuming you all read the Bible. Uh, so as you're reading the Bible and you, you come across some times when people are, somebody says, like, Jesus will just have said something. And they're like, wow, we've, we've never heard teachings like this before. Or like, his, he teaches like one who has authority. Like, have you ever thought about what that means? Like, it, sometimes it doesn't sound as earth-shattering as it, as, as, it did, as it seemed to them somehow. Well, these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, these you have heard it said, but I tell you sections, uh, these are great examples of what people were talking about. So teachers back in those days, religious teachers back in those days, would take the laws and they would talk about how to apply them or how to safeguard yourself from breaking them. Jesus took these laws and said, no, it's not even about these laws. Here's what these laws were, made to, were meant to get at. Here's the heart of the law. That was different. So he does this here. The law says don't murder. But Jesus is like, hey, if you have hate in your heart towards another person, that's murder in your heart, and that is just as bad. He's raising the bar here. And then he gives some examples. He talks about calling someone raka, which is more or less, it just kind of more or less meant empty-headed or stupid. Now, that may not sound like such a horrible thing, right? But the way that this word was used back then was pretty much a swear word. It was cussing someone out. It was really bad. It had immoral implications to it, overtones to it. And the empty-headedness that it implied went beyond just calling someone stupid or, or ignorant. It meant that they were empty all the way through. They were devoid or empty of any value. They didn't mean anything. They were worthless. And calling someone a fool would have carried a similar meaning. These insults were more than just your, your average playground name calling. Right? This got at one's inherent worth or lack thereof. Right? And Jesus says here that if you attack the meaning of a person, the worth of a person... You're putting yourself in danger of the fire of hell. So here, Jesus has essentially quoted an ancient swear word and then said, if you use these terms against someone, you're in danger of hell. No biggie, just hell, right? And this isn't even the last time he talks about hell in this passage today. And a quick, quick note about hell here. The Greek word that he uses uh, for hell is Gehenna, which is derived from Gehenna. 
which refers to a physical location, the Hinnom Valley. And this valley was historically where human sacrifices were offered to the pagan god of Molech. And we see some of those practices happening in the Old Testament. After that, it became a dumping ground, a, a, a trash dump, city dump, where all the trash of the city of Jerusalem would be dumped. But it was more than just a city dump, because the trash that was dumped here was burned. So it smelled delicious. You didn't want to be downwind of Gehenna. It's also where they would dump the bodies of criminals that had been executed, and they were burned as well. It was a place where the fire was constantly going. It smelled terrible. And eventually, it, because it was such a vile and putrid and sick place, it became a metaphor, a visual representation for how hell would have been described. Right? A place of fire, a place of torment and destruction, essentially a place where no good thing existed. In Mark, uh, it's talking about the same teaching that we're reading today. And it says that you'll be in danger um, of hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. Maybe you've heard that, that phrasing before about hell. And again, it's not meant to be the literal picture of hell. It's borrowing the imagery from this refuse dump where worms exist perpetually because of all the garbage and the dead bodies and the fire continues to burn. So when you attack the worth of someone, you put yourself in danger of that place. Because at best, at best, you're attacking a person who is made in the image of God and therefore has worth inherent in their very existence. And at worst, you're attacking the image of God himself. So I'm gonna skip down. We have got a few verses in the middle. But I'm going to skip down to the last part of our passage, verse 27, for a moment, because it contains the similar teaching structure that the first part did. Uh, so Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I tell you that even lust in your heart is adultery. So he takes the law again and he says, no, this is the heart of it. And then he tells you to start gouging out your eyes and cutting off your hands. I told you, graphic language, right? Jesus did not, he was not all sunshine and lollipops. He had power behind his words. Now, Jesus, it's important to note, is not being literal here. If you cut off a part of your body that made you sin, we would have no body left after a while. It would not take long, right? If we had no arms or legs or tongue or eyes or ears, we'd still find a way to sin with our belly buttons. Like, it's just the way we are. So he's not telling us to do this literally. He's using exaggeration to make a point. We actually see Jesus employ the use of hyperbole and exaggeration frequently in his teachings. So what's the point then that he's driving at? It's that we need to take sin seriously. We don't even want to flirt with it or give it an inch. It'll kill us if we do. We need to totally shun sin and live perfectly, which is, of course, impossible. But obedience matters. Remember last week's message. Perfect obedience 
perfect obedience is still the standard for entry into the donkey kingdom. Uh-oh. <laughs> so this all sounds hopeless and like bad news until we remember last, the, the, the point of last week's message that Jesus lived our perfect obedience for us and then gave it to us as a gift. Right? So there is good news, folks. Jesus gives us hope. So he takes all these rules and he makes them about the heart. He says, if you want to have a right relationship with me, it's got to be out of love. And it comes from the heart. And then there are the verses that come in between the ones that we just looked at. And they can seem kind of unrelated at first. But they do connect. If you'll notice, I think it's verse 23 uh, starts with therefore, which means it's connected to the teaching just before it. So it, they connect. So let's, let's talk about that. Jesus talks about getting right with people. Verse 23 says, look, if you're on your way to church, or even if you're already there, Tara's already starting to, the first song, right? If you remember that you had a fight or you said something stupid to your spouse this morning, you better go and make that right first. Right? Our worship is to come from a right heart with others as well. Part of being right with God and worship is being right with the people in our lives. And then he gives another example. He says, if you've got something going on that's heading for the courts, do everything you can to settle things with that person. You don't want to go through that. Basically, get right with that person. Even if it's with a bad guy. He didn't say bad guy. His adversary. Even if it's with your adversary. We tend to think of them as bad guys, right? We're told elsewhere in Scripture that Christians are not to take each other to court. We appeal to a higher authority. That's a tough one sometimes. So how are these connected to those other teachings? It seems like the first ones that we looked at had to do with like law versus heart, right? And it was kind of helping us distinguish that. And then the two in the middle have to do with swift reconciliation. Right, being right with it. Not bad ideas, either one of them, but how are they connected? Well, all of this has to do with right relationships. And right relationships start in the heart. These passages are God saying, look, I'm not just looking for a compliant heart, an obligated obedience. I'm looking for a loving heart. I'm not some compliance officer putting you through mandatory training that doesn't change you. I'm a loving father who wants a relationship with you, and it starts in your heart. And these relationships with other people, you need to have a right heart with them too. Your relationship with others and your relationship with me starts in the heart. Uh, pastor, author, and theologian Tony Evans says, in order to have a healthy vertical relationship, intimacy and fellowship with God, you must maintain your horizontal relationships with others. Make peace with your adversary, he says, in as much as it depends on you. And I like that last line there, <laughs> in as much as it depends on you. Because right? sometimes our efforts at reconciliation won't be reciprocated. 
Sometimes people won't accept your offers, your efforts to reconcile. But we can't control that. To put it on the same footing that Jesus did, it's about your heart. Your heart needs to be right with God and with others. What others do with that is on them. And this reconciliation, this is more than just keeping the peace. Right? This is more than just placating someone so they won't take you to court. Right? This is about making peace. It's about restoring wholeness where brokenness once reigned. This is about being a peacemaker, like it says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. And it's about pursuing peace as our brother in Christ's core value talks about. And then the context of these teachings looms large for us as well. We said uh, just last week that Jesus lived our perfect obedience, right? He said he was the fulfillment of the law for us. The law wasn't binding on us anymore because he fulfilled it. Then today he goes and explains what that means for a couple of laws specifically here. It means having a right heart, a heart of love and relationship. Essentially saying it's not about the law, it's about the relationship. Our relationship with others and with God. And it starts in the heart. Right relationships start in the heart. When we live in a paradigm of compliance, of obligated obedience, of rule keeping, our mentality becomes what do we need to do to break even? Or what's the minimum standard for us to stay in God's good graces? But when our mentality stems from a heart of love, it becomes more about how can I show love to God? How can I show love to people? What are the opportunities that I have to bring peace? What can I do to show people God's love for them through the ways that I love them? The motivation is completely different. We move from what do I have to do to what do I get to do. It's completely different. So where have you been looking for the bare minimum? Where have you been feeling a sense of guilt or obligation? And look, feelings are tricky. Okay, we don't always feel in love or, or feel like loving other people. I get it. I get it. And that's even okay. But love is about a choice anyway. It's not really about how we feel. Love is a choice that we make. And our feelings just then kind of come along for the ride. Our emotions don't lead us. Love does. That's not an oxymoron. Another question, where do you need peace with someone else? Who in your life do you need to be made right with? Right relationships start in the heart. Maybe you need the Spirit of God to come in to work in your heart today to move you in the right direction with Him or with someone else. Maybe you don't even want to make peace with an adversary. Maybe you're angry with God and you don't even want peace with Him. 
but the Spirit can help with the want to, too. A prayer that says, Lord, I don't even want this, but help me to want it. That's a good prayer. In the donkey kingdom, we live in right relationship. Right relationship with God and with other people. And we pray for this kingdom to come here at Marsh Creek like it is in heaven. Think of the witness that could be. I had a group of people with differences in, po differences in politics, parenting styles, schooling preferences, who can do life together and still love each other. What a witness to the world, looking for a model, looking for a better way. So many look out and see, so, everybody's fighting. Everybody's fighting. There's got to be a better way. And we can show them. We can show them the way of our donkey messiah.